1: And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything, yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything. Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. You ever hear the one about the mad scientist who tried to create life? About how things got complicated, and the monster itself wondered if it had a soul, or if it was merely a puppet that looked like a sentient being? Oh, that story's old really old, perhaps far older than you might imagine. Before Commander Data, before Pinocchio, before Frankenstein, there was the man-made monster called the Homunculus. And if you wanted to make a Homunculus, you really had to take matters into your own hand.
0: It's
1: actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant, hairy creature, part ape, part man. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and today, Ben Radford and Karen Stolzno and I interview a historian of science. It's a really fun interview about a monster that's little known today, but which had more of an impact on history and scientific thought than you might imagine. And just so we're clear, the word homunculus has a more common meaning in science today. Roughly, it's used to represent the idea of consciousness being a a little being inside you. And that's a great topic for discussion on its own, but outside the scope of this episode. This episode is about one of the strangest creatures we've ever discussed on Monster Talk. And come to think of it, I should mention right now that we're going to be talking about some of the more solitary aspects of human sexuality in this episode. So, if you have young ones listening, this might be a good time to switch over to see what those wacky kids at Big Picture Science are up to. You've been warned. Monster
0: Monster
1: Talk. So today we're going to interview Professor William R. Newman of Indiana University's Department of History and Philosophy of Science. He's the author of seven books, including Promethean Ambitions, Alchemy, and the Quest to Perfect Nature, which includes a fascinating chapter on the topic of today's show, the homunculus. So, just getting started, um, let's begin with the basics. What is a homunculus? Uh, Yeah, well, I mean, a homunculus was essentially an artificial human being. I mean, so, you know, I had always imagined them as... um, Uh, being something that an alchemist might create as a little servant uh, or a helper, but I'm not really sure that's accurate. Uh, Was it more of a science experiment, or were they supposed to actually be useful, or what's what's sort of the purpose there?
2: Well, that's a complicated question, because uh, these quests to create uh, artificial humans uh, have a long history, actually. They go back to probably late antiquity, the early Muslim period, maybe, um, and anyway, the, uh, the goal changed over time, right? I mean, uh, I could give you an entire history of this if you like, but it's a little bit elaborate.
1: Yes, we'd love to hear a long form, uh, you know, maybe, you know. Five minutes or so, or whatever you can on the history of the homunculus. <laughs> if you could... all right, all
2: right. Well, look, I'll. Uh, I mean, you okay, squeezed I'll... the
1: whole chapter, so I know you can get some words out of it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'll start at the beginning. Um, yeah, the earliest, uh, you know, really identifiable homunculus is in this uh, Arabic story um, called the story of uh, Solomon and Absal. Which is a frustrated love affair between these two characters, Solomon and Absol. And it turns out that uh, Solomon is a homunculus who was created by his father, this mythical king, Harmanus, who may be Hermes Trismegistus, another mythical figure, um, who wanted to have a child without, um, as it were, uh, you know, defiling himself by having sexual intercourse. That's the primary message behind this story, that uh, it's possible to uh, have an artificial child in a bottle. Basically, what the uh, king does is uh, he masturbates and produces some semen that way and puts it in a mandrake uh, root, a hollow mandrake root. And then his court advisor, a wise man named Kalikulas apparently uh, heats it up for a period of time and generates this uh, child, Solomon, in the mandrake root. Now, the purpose of this, if there is a purpose, is uh, once again simply for this king to be able to remain an ascetic and yet have a child, right? So the homunculus, Solomon, uh, is apparently a pretty normal human being. He doesn't have uh... magical powers or anything like that um... he just happens to be a child that is produced artificially but as you progress through time the role of the homunculus changes so that by the time you get to the sixteenth century and uh... Paracelsus, who is quite an amazing character in his own right, um, talks about the homunculus, or at least somebody writing under the name of Paracelsus, in a work called On the Nature of Things. Um, The homunculus uh, has become this sort of uh, semi-magical figure who has all sorts of prophetical powers and can help the owner of the homunculus um, somehow to win battles and this sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, the role of the homunculus changes as the legend evolves over time.
0: And uh, didn't the ingredients change as well that were used in this formula?
2: No, actually not. Uh, (laughs) uh, It's actually in this text that I'm talking about. It was published in 1572, this work on the nature of things, which is probably not really by the historical Paracelsus. Um, The homunculus is once again produced out of human semen that is sealed up in a flask and allowed to incubate um, for, I believe, 40 days and 40 nights.
3: So I'm trying to picture this. Is it basically um, just a, a is it a human sized figure? In, in a lot of the uh, the lore that I've read, it was supposed to be a small, tiny man, anywhere from you know, six inches to a, a few feet high. Is it w- w- what uh, what what does it physically look like? Is it just like a small person? What is it?
2: Yeah, well, in this Paracelsian treatise, it starts out small, but um, the author is ambiguous as to whether it grows to a fully-sized figure or not. Um, So you could really read the text either way. And, yeah, certainly some other texts that talk about uh, homunculi do uh, maintain that, yeah, they would remain small. But the smallness is not really the key issue. What's really key about all of these reports that I've mentioned so far is that uh, they claim that the homunculus is produced out of semen alone. Now, that really is important if you think in terms of pre-modern theories of human generation. I mean, all of this really ultimately harks back to Aristotle, and, of course, uh, Aristotle's uh, follower Galen, the medical writer of the 2nd century A.D., because these guys bought into the theory that the way human generation works is that the semen, the male semen, acts on the menstrual blood of the female. So the female menstrual blood supplies the matter, and the semen provides the form, all right? So what that means is that if you could create a human being without the menstrual blood, you'd be creating it without the matter. That's sort of... uh, a celestial uh, human being that uh, was not weighed down by the sort of prison of material existence. I think that's the operative idea behind this.
1: How did Aristotle become such a major influence in, in medieval Europe? I've always been curious about that.
2: Um, well, yeah. Aristotle, of course, wrote a huge corpus, and he was a brilliant man. He you know, was uh, sort of the creator, in a way, of formal logic, uh, um, and his logical works had been known in the early Middle Ages. Um, it's his works on natural philosophy, in particular, that came to be known in the uh, 12th century and later in uh, Western Europe. And uh, it happened that... Uh, a huge movement to translate uh, Greek scientific works into Latin from Arabic. You know, the Arabs had translated a lot of this stuff already in the Arabic. Um, took place during the 12th century, and this was more or less coincident with the period when the universities started coming into existence in the 12th, 13th century. So at the same time as you have this marvelous institution of organized knowledge coming into existence, namely the European universities, you're also getting this huge quantity of uh, material translated from Arabic into Latin, uh, much of which happens to be Aristotle's works, right? Um, so th- it's kind of a fortunate uh, coincidence, in a way, that you have all of this material coming in at the same time with this institution of learning and suddenly becoming available to the learned world.
1: Was this kind of, uh, this information, this uh, Aristotelian knowledge, or at least at the alchemy level, was and the homunculus uh, legend in general, was it widely known, was it widely believed in by the general populace, or was this something just for um, their... You know, the medieval nerd. <laughs> <laughs> I,
2: you know, I would say on one level it was for the medieval nerd. That is, it's something that theologians discussed in some of their treatises and then alchemists discussed. Um, however, on another level, uh, people did believe, uh, certainly, I think, widely, that uh, there were demons and so forth that could visit one at night and collect one's, uh, you know, nocturnal emissions and so forth, and make mm-hmm. monsters out of them. And what happened was that various theologians then interpreted that uh, sort of legendary idea about what demons could do, they interpreted that as the creation of homunculi. So it's sort of an uh, intermixture of popular belief and a kind of scientific gloss on that popular belief.
0: And so what separated alchemy from black magic in the eyes of medieval authorities?
2: Uh, They really were very, very distinct in the eyes of medieval authorities. The reason for that is because, um, you know, alchemy per se, right, was just a manipulation of matter, you, you took various minerals, or in the case of making a homunculus, uh, which you know really wasn't a common thing, right? Um, you'd take bodily fluids and so forth. But all of that was considered to be perfectly natural, right? It didn't involve, let's say, the invocation of demons, it didn't involve witches, it didn't involve sacrifices or anything of that sort. It was just a natural activity, rather like cooking, right? So there's no particular reason why it should have been associated with magic, and uh, generally speaking, uh, if you mean by magic, demonic magic, it wasn't.
3: personally first heard about the homunculus uh, when I was a teenager playing Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, and so I sort of, a lot of times when I'm, when I'm, we're talking about these monsters and these creatures, one of the things I, I sort of flash back to is, uh, is, is being a, being a, a teenage nerd uh, looking through the monster manual and I actually happen to have a copy of the D&D 4th uh, edition in the monster manual It says that the alignment of it varies from, you know, for example chaotic good to lawful evil uh, how, does that sound <laughs> right? What was, uh, what, what was, were they sort of aligned with its creator or was it just sort of a, did they have free will? What was the, what was the The thought on
2: that? Um, Well, again, it depends on what author you're reading, right? Um, In this old story of Solomon and Absal, you know, this uh, created homunculus, Solomon, just seems to be a perfectly uh, normal human being, right? On the other hand, if you look at some of the medieval treatises that discuss homunculi, they argue that they are. more or less insentiate. Uh, there's, for example, a treatise ascribed to Thomas Aquinas, though it's not really by him, probably written in the 14th century, um, called On the Essences of the Essence of Essences. And this particular treatise um, talks about creating the homunculus as a kind of a uh, medical um, product. That's to say if the homunculus's blood is useful for some sort of uh, maladies, but the homunculus, according to this author, will never actually have a rational mind. Okay? It can only vegetate and it can you know, experience sensory material, but it can never reason. So it can never really be a fully human being. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, a position that various other authors take as well, right? So it just depends on which author you read. I mean, there was a lot of – actually, this was one of the uh, arguments about the homunculus. Can it actually be a fully uh, rational human being, or would God in his wisdom prevent man from being able to create another fully human being?
3: It sounds like it, it sort of touches on the, the Frankenstein, you know, mythology of this, you know, this artificially created uh, entity, and you know, is it a human? Is it not a human? You know, what where does it go from there?
2: No, absolutely. That's that's a really good point, and I think Mary Shelley was in fact drawing on some of this uh, this older material about the creation of artificial human beings when she wrote Frankenstein. Um, yeah, they considered a lot of the sort of ethical issues, um, you know, that now come up in bioengineering and so forth. A lot of these issues came up in the context of discussing the homunculus, so it was sort of a moral problem, an ethical problem. It was kind of a focal point for discussion about issues, for example, the role of women. In uh, human generation, is the woman just a hollow flask, as it were? Ridiculous as that sounds, in terms of modern uh, generated theory, uh, you know, from the perspective of the medieval and early moderns, it made a certain amount of sense. So there was a discussion about this uh, and various other issues, again concerning the proper use for the homunculus. Is it uh, ethically okay to dissect the homunculus and use its body parts, for example, in medicine? <laughs> Uh, I mean, that's, that's very much like the stem cell debate. You know, they were considering yeah. these same sorts of issues, though, of course, they couldn't do any of the things that we now can do.
1: It's interesting, though, because it's not just Frankenstein. It's also Pinocchio. I mean, the story you were talking about sounds a, oh, lot, yeah. a lot like Pinocchio. And, you know, and not just uh, stem cells, but also robotics and AI. It, it seems like this is a story or a creature that, even though it's not widely known, uh, I think, by the general populace, it's got resonance uh, at so many levels. It's just a fascinating uh, legend. Um, did most of the lore in your research deal with how to make them? I, I guess I am still kind of curious about what can they do if you actually create one? Do, do they have, are they, are they servitors or they, do they, are they, you know, what, what can they do?
2: Curiously, um, the medieval sources, and and there's one in particular beyond the one ascribed to St. Thomas, there's another one uh, that's uh, even more bizarre called the Book of the Cow. And the Book of the Cow is uh, from an Arabic manuscript, though we only have it in Latin. It got translated into Latin at some point. And that describes the creation of a homunculus that is... uh, Intended to be dissected, and then you're supposed to be able to do stuff like uh, uh, <laughs> use its blood to anoint your feet, and you'll be able to walk on water, and uh, you know all sorts of really bizarre claims about uh, what this will allow you to do if you use its bodily fluids in one way or another. This is, in fact, part of a uh, medieval and magical tradition called uh, organotherapy where you use different uh, body parts to cure different types of diseases. Like if you have a bad headache, recurrent headache, you're supposed to go out and eat some human brain. Um, if you uh, are having a uh, you know, problem, uh, you know, a sexual problem, you know, you're supposed to ingest uh, bits of genitals or something like this. Uh, this is sometimes called uh, direct apotheca, filth pharmacy, wow. <laughs> for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. And this uh, this book of the cow is full of that sort of thing. It's a very strange text, I have to say. And so it's but, also uh, a
1: sympathetic magic, right?
2: Yes, right. Um, this is not explicitly uh, demonic magic. It's a kind of natural magic, you know. That is to say, using the secret powers of material things, adding them together to, you know, create uh, more powerful uh, medicines and so forth.
0: You were mentioning earlier. You were talking about uh, using the homunculus's blood for maladies and and Frankenstein as well. I understand that the homunculus was kept alive by being fed human blood. So I'm wondering how the creature fits in with the larger vampire traditions.
2: Oh, that's an interesting question. Yeah, it's true. In the uh, Pseudo-Paracelsian book on the nature of things, he does say, the author does say, that you're supposed to feed the homunculus, what he calls the arcanum of human blood, um, which is probably uh, blood that is uh, combined with... uh, a mineral acid and allowed to sit for a while. It's not entirely clear what this arcanum of human blood is. I don't think there's a direct connection with uh, the vampire legend, uh, but there are all sorts of, of course, uh, miraculous properties associated with human blood, particularly the idea that it contains some sort of pneumatic spiritual substance, that uh, has life-giving properties. So I think that's what the pseudo Paracelsian author is drawing on.
3: I'm trying to picture, um, you know, sort of how this fits in in the broader scheme of monsters uh, and things like that. I mean, were there, were there, was it a case of where there were many of these homunculi running around, or is it a case of where there were really only one or two or three? Sort of, you know, you could basically you could just name them <laughs> instead of just calling them by their generic name. Uh, You know, again, you talked earlier about the one with Paracelsus. Um, Are are there supposed, obviously, are there races of these? Are there thought to be, you know, many of them, or just sort of a a singular entity, or how does that work?
2: Well, if you look at the theologians who discuss um, the origin of races like the Huns in particular, there's a tradition that the Huns were created by intercourse between demons and humans. And that um, receives a kind of homuncular interpretation, actually, in the 15th century. The um, way that this sort of intercourse was supposed to happen was a succubus, a female demon, was supposed to come during a dream and you know uh, induce nocturnal emissions, which would then be collected by this demon and somehow been transferred to a human female and doctored up to create, in this case, a sort of super race, namely the Huns. Another example of this kind of story is in the uh, tradition that the uh, Celtic magician Merlin was uh, a monster produced in this fashion. So, yes, some people did think that, that uh, the Huns were a race of homunculi. (laughs) So, obviously, they didn't stay small.
1: (laughs) Hmm. How does a, a homunculus compare to... And wait, the plural is homunculi, right? Yep. Okay, all right. So, In case you ever run into more than one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how does a homunculus compare to uh, a golem or other kinds of uh, magical living creations uh, from, uh-huh. from lore of the time?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, some people have argued um, that the Golem tradition is uh, closely related to the homunculus tradition. I think they're very, very distinct, actually, because if you look at the way that a Golem was supposed to be created, uh, it was supposed to be done by verbal magic, you know, employing the magic of uh, Hebrew letters. The uh, golem, one story from the uh, 16th century is that a golem was made out of clay with the uh, Hebrew word emeth on its forehead, meaning truth, and then the uh, first letter was erased, converting that to the word for death, and then the golem would collapse. Unfortunately, uh, in this particular story, it collapses on its maker um, because he didn't have the good sense to get out of the way when he erased the first letter. Uh, But you see, all of that has to do with uh creating something by means of words it has nothing to do with this uh sort of wet a life method that the alchemists were involved in using uh semen and so forth it's an entirely different tradition in my opinion
0: obviously the homunculus is closely tied into mythology and folklore were there different uh, culture-bound versions uh, of the homunculus around the world? Or did it stick more or less faithful to its original version?
2: Well, in the sense, you know, that the homunculus involves this attempt at artificial generation employing males only. I mean, there is a very distinct tradition of this, uh, again, going back to this uh, late antique or early Islamic period uh, and carrying through all the way to the 17th century, certainly. So that is a very distinct uh, tradition, but what changes is the interpretation of the homunculus. That is, uh, what does it do, what is it good for? And again, I think a lot of this devolves upon using the homunculus as a way of uh, sort of raising ethical concerns about the limits of what we would call science. Um, Actually, I think that the homunculus issue, right, whether human beings can make an artificial human is closely related to the alchemical issue of whether alchemists can make gold. In the one case, it is a question of whether we can make the very pinnacle of creation itself, namely the human being. In the other case, it's the question whether we can make the pinnacle of mineral creation, namely artificial gold. So the two issues are actually closely interrelated. And they were topics that people liked to discuss, you know, as sort of... Uh, in a way, thought experiments, you might say.
3: One of the things that really intrigued me about homunculi is that uh, they're not that well known. You know, if you look in the the you know the, the panoply of all these different monsters, you've got werewolves, of course, or vampires are always permanently hot, banshees, ghosts, um, elves, trolls, things like that. But uh, but uh, homunculi, homunculi are you know certainly far less known. Uh, why, do you, why do you suppose that is? Is it just a matter of just uh, authors and and uh, and you know filmmakers just aren't in, as interested in these creatures because they don't kill people and they're not as threatening. Or do you think well, why do you think they've been sort of overlooked in, in in pop culture?
2: Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti and I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness,
1: philosophy.
2: Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh,
3: crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio
1: book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show.
2: <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on
1: Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and WagOn.
2: Uh, I couldn't really answer that question, except to say that maybe they haven't been overlooked as much as you're suggesting. I mean, if you view again, uh, you know, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein as a sort of uh, modern-day derivation of these old legends about artificial life, then uh, you know maybe they really haven't been ignored.
3: Yeah, but I mean, for example, if you if you ask people about Frankenstein, they're not going to say, "Oh, that's a, that's a version of the homunculus."
2: But actually, there are, if I recall correctly, homunculi in the Hollywood, the first Hollywood version of Frankenstein. Actually, it's so an, in,
1: yeah, it's *Bride of Frankenstein*. Yeah, that's where they show right. up. Yeah.
2: Ah, uh, it's in *Bride of Frankenstein*. Yeah, that, that was, I was
1: actually going to bring that up. They, they show mm-hmm. up in the, um, um, I forget the name of the the character. Was it Fezenger? the uh, the actor I believe, and he brings in these. He's got these little beakers with little homunculus homunculi <laughs> and, and they appear to be you know tiny people dressed uh, in, the, you know, in the period costumes and uh, it's an amusing scene unless you know the lore of the homunculus and then it's kind of creepy because uh, <laughs> that, that old man's been busy <laughs>
3: Well, I guess the, the, that's one of the things that, that sort of strikes me is that is that, you know, certainly if you look at the, its origin and its ties to alchemy and, and you know, life creation, it, it's it's very, very interesting, at least it is to us. But in terms of, um, you know, again, compared to werewolves, compared to vampires, ghosts and things like that, um, you can see how it would be somewhat less interesting, uh, just sort of uh, other than from a historical point of view, if you're, if you're going to write a story about homunculus, then sort of, okay, well, we've created him, now what's he do? He doesn't turn into a bat, you know, he's not going to turn into a werewolf, he's not going to plank <laughs> chains, so...
2: It was basically uh, a sort of erudite tradition, I think, the homunculus. But it was related, once again, to these more popular folk traditions. For example, Mm -hmm. um, the mandrake. I already mentioned that in the story of uh, Solomon and Absal. But there's another connection with the homunculus, too, and that is with another uh, Paracelsian work, this one by the genuine Paracelsus. Um, where he says that um, the mandrakes that are sold on the street, that look like human beings, are completely fraudulent, okay? They're carvings made by Mm -hmm. swindlers. But he says there's another kind of mandrake that is a homunculus. And uh, this harkens back to uh, an old story about uh, the mandrake as... uh, a gallows man, Galgenmann, or Galgenmanline, as they say in German. Um, And the idea was that uh, the Mandrake root is formed beneath the bodies of decaying criminals who've been uh, left on the gibbet after being hanged. And uh, the idea that Paracelsus is developing is that what happens is that uh, bodily fluids from the decaying body drip down into the ground and are incubated in the warm ground, and that the mandrake is literally a homunculus, made the same way that you would do it artificially, except that you would have a flask if if you did it artificially. So there is a a definite uh, interconnection there between the folk legend of the mandrake as a little miniature human being and the homunculus. In other words, Paracelsus is providing a sort of scientific explanation in the science of his day of how Mandrakes really come about.
1: After considering that legend and then also uh, the writings of Aristotle on the same topic, considering how powerfully generative sperm was considered to be by people of the time, did did they fear what would happen if you masturbated? I mean, was that like a a real, beyond just the sin concerns, was that like a, a real issue? about what people were doing with their semen?
2: Yeah, I was. uh, In particular, uh, Paracelsus and yet another work that's specifically devoted to the homunculus um uh writes extensively about the dangers of retention of semen. This was uh an actual medical ailment that's described in most medieval uh
1: medical texts I'm the horrib- idea was, yeah i was hmm? like, I'm horribly familiar with it
2: <laughs> <laughs> The idea was that uh, if you retain semen uh, at least if you you know take paracelsus's view uh it's literally gonna turn into homunculi inside of your body right. So he associates uh, all sorts of uh, horrible ailments with that. So you either have to get it out of your body um you know by having children or um he actually suggests well you should go castrate yourself.
3: Those those are two options? Excuse me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm sorry. You sure don't want to retain it in your body. That's a very very bad thing according to Paracelsus.
3: Wow. I'm on the wrong path I'm afraid.
2: <laughs>
0: Uh, Were there any uh, references or ties to the story of Onan, then, from the Bible?
2: Uh, You know, I can't think of any, actually. Um, Paracelsus does base a lot of his ideas on biblical sources, but what he's thinking of in particular, this uh, business about uh, self-castration, goes back to the Gospel of Matthew, as I recall, um, where there's a passage saying uh, something to the effect that there are two types of eunuchs, those who... Um, are castrated and those who castrate themselves. And he takes that as a kind of an injunction, that you should go out and uh, take uh, the matter into your own hands, so to speak.
3: <laughs> wise, wise man. Jocelyn Elders would be proud. Um <laughs> I was reading one version of the story. It talked about how Paracelsus died of alcoholism and that his homunculus presumably died along with him, maybe because he was no longer available to, to feed it blood. Other versions suggest that it's actually still alive, you know, 500 years later. What, uh, what, uh, what became of his homunculus?
2: <laughs> well, look, I mean, the genuine Paracelsus does not tell us to make homunculi. The genuine Paracelsus is the one who warns us about retention of semen. Um, this work that is ascribed to Paracelsus on the nature of things is not really by him. This was published in 1572, and it's just using some Paracelsian ideas to develop uh, its own concepts. And it doesn't actually say that Paracelsus, or the, whoever this author was, made a homunculus, right? Instead, what it does is it tells you how to make a homunculus. Now, that's a very, very different thing. And that, I'm glad you raised that point, because that raises an interesting issue about how people could have believed these things in general. Same thing with uh, alchemical gold. Not too many alchemical texts say, well, I made gold by means of the philosopher's stone. Rather, they tell you how to do it, right? In other words, it's a kind of uh, lack of boundary between actually doing experiments and thought experiments. And I think that the homunculus was a sort of thought experiment.
3: But it was a thought experiment that anybody could pretty much do, right? I mean, anybody, any man who has access to, you know, a jar and, and you know, a place to store it for 40 days and 40 nights can figure out whether this works or not, right?
1: You, you mean it's a testable hypothesis? Yes, that's exactly
2: <laughs> what I mean. Yeah, and, and very likely people did try it, but you won't find anybody admitting they tried it.
0: <laughs> yeah, interesting question, Ben.
1: I'm just saying. I have fa- <laughs> things I won't say. <laughs> I, I was interested to discover there's two Paracelsus, uh, so there's a pair of Paracelsus. That's kind of funny. Paracelsus. <laughs> 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 I, I just am fascinated by this topic, and it surprises me that that it is you know so little known. Like I say, outside of uh, well, monster nerds and in the uh, history of science, people, right? Um, I did notice that the uh, the Mandrake legend, though, did make it into uh, the Harry Potter series. Um, they, I don't think, yeah, it, uh, they used the uh, idea that they were raising real mandrakes in the uh, the magic. Uh, I don't remember a magical herb garden that they had, and they had to feed them blood—not their own—but uh, uh, yeah, it was, it was. And of course, if you pull them from the ground and they scream, well, then that's lethal. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, it was a fairly accurate uh, rendition of the of the legend. Uh, they left off the part about collecting uh, semen from under a gibbet, but you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh yeah, you know you, you mentioned uh, the mandrake. Uh, there's also the story of the basilisk this mythical creature that uh, supposedly could kill you by looking at you, right? So the only way to kill it was to wear a suit of mirrors, and then it would have to look at itself and die. Well, actually, this very same text of pseudo Paracelsus that contains the method, the recipe for making homunculus, also tells you how to make a basilisk. And the way to make a basilisk is um, to take... uh, a human female's menstrual blood and seal that up for 40 days and 40 nights and that'll produce a basilisk. So to my mind, what this illustrates is it's a kind of a a warped uh, eugenic experiment, right? If you take a, a pure male right, as it were, which is homunculus, because it's made from male semen alone. Um, It's this wonderful little being that can uh, foretell the future and help you win battles. If you take a sort of uh, pure, isolated female, on the other hand, which is the basilisk made from menstrual blood, well, you get a basilisk. Right, which has uh, kind of a magnified, uh, it's a kind of magnification of all of the bad properties that were associated misogynistically with females. Like uh, the ability of a woman supposedly to ruin a mirror if she looks at it while she's having her period, right? Or that she can supposedly, by holding a bottle of wine, turn it sour. Well, the basilisk, of course, has the same sort of power, only if a basilisk looks at you, it kills you, right?
1: My wife has that power.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So that sort of thing is going on, too. It's this kind of weird, misogynistic, uh, eugenic thought experiment in the production of the the
1: homunculus and the basilisk. Absolutely fascinating.
0: I think you you started to answer this one, but why would someone go to the trouble of creating a homunculus? It seems like an awful lot of work, and surely in the Middle Ages there would have been plenty of slaves and street urchins and others that you could have forced into being a helper of some kind, or with the typical duties... Um, requiring more magical abilities.
2: Well, yeah, a pseudo-paracelsus claims that the homunculus, if you carry it around with you, will um, help you uh, in various ways, foretelling the future and helping you in battle. Those are the two things that you mentioned, which are magnifications, I think, of uh, heroic virtues were associated with males, right? There's also another link uh, here possibly with the mandrake because it was thought that uh, if you had a mandrake and you kept it sealed up or even in a bottle, it would bring you good luck. Um, Some stories from the 16th and 17th centuries say that it'll even double your money if you have it wrapped up and put in a little box, right? And you put a coin in it and come back the next day, you'll you'll have two coins, this sort of thing. So I think, once again, that's a kind of bleed through of the Mandrake legend to the homunculus legend. Um, So, yeah, it was thought by some people to have uh, real practical uses.
0: And a bit like a genie as well.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
3: In fact, in fact, that's that's a great transition to, to what I was wondering, which is that as you said, it sort of came from Arabic uh, Arabic origins, and and the the main I mean, there's a, there's a variety of, of Arabic and Muslim influenced uh, creatures, primarily genies and jinn. But I'm wondering how this fits in with, uh, for example, the Quran, because uh, we have we have. Uh, We have genies mentioned explicitly and repeatedly in the Qur'an. Uh, Are homunculi mentioned in there, and and if so, what's the connection between uh, Islam and homunculi?
2: Um, I don't think that homunculi are mentioned in the Qur'an, though I can't swear to it. Um, Yeah, I'm not sure there's a direct connection with Islam per se, there were plenty of uh, Arabic sources, however, that did, you know, talk about the creation of the homunculus. Another one that I haven't mentioned is uh, the huge corpus of uh, alchemical and uh, natural magic treatises ascribed to Jabir ibn Hayyan. This Jabir ibn Ayan supposedly lived in the 8th century and uh, was supposedly a student of uh, a person who's rather famous in the Islamic Hadith literature named Jafar al So there is some sort of connection there with uh, Ismaili Islam, but not a connection directly with the Quran, as far as I know. But at okay. any rate, this uh, Jabir... In some of the Javier treatises, which can't possibly uh, go back to the 8th century, they must be much later, Uh, you do have descriptions of uh, the creation of an artificial human being in a kind of a rotisserie that is intended to be made out of a crystalline substance that mimics the celestial spheres at the center of which you make this uh, artificial human being, once again, out of uh, human semen. And it's supposed to have marvelous abilities. You're supposed to be able to convert... A female into a male this way. So once again, you've got this sort of sexual agenda going, um, and it's supposed to have other magical properties as well. Um, so yeah, there was a huge literature on uh, artificial generation in Islam, but uh, not so much linked to the Quran per se. Right. And I guess
3: the, the other thing that jumps to mind is that another big distinction between uh, jinn and uh, homunculus is that is that jinn were explicitly created uh, by Allah and by God. Whereas in, in the case of homunculus, they're, they're not. I mean, they're, you know, they're presumably you know, humans, albeit ones who have magical ability, but humans uh, creating this instead of, uh, of gods. So that, that's, that's a very different origin there.
2: Yeah, and and in fact, that's the big issue. That's the big issue with the homunculus. Can a human being create another in individual? Or is that only God that can do that? Um, And again, that's where you get this uh, discussion as to whether the homunculus can have a real soul, a rational soul that allows it to be fully human or not. And of course it's very convenient if you can say that, uh, no, it can't have a rational soul because then you're free to dissect it and use its organs and so forth for all sorts of various magical or medical purposes.
1: In the terms of alchemy lore, it seems like alchemists are, are probably given a, a pretty... Uh, what do you? I guess a bulleted sort of version. When you go through high school and you know college or, or low level college, uh, looking at the history of science, we get this sort of like uh, they wanted to turn you know base metals into gold. They wanted to find the elixir of life. They wanted to create artificial life. And I think that it seems like there was a lot more going on there. But this sort of claim seems like something that's imminently testable, yet. Uh, was there a lot of? I mean, they obviously hadn't invented the scientific method by this point, and and there wasn't really peer review exactly. But people were clearly communicating with one another, if by no other means than by comparing other people's writings and taking notes. So, so how how did this uh, sort of evolve into modern science? When people, did people think they were just making a recipe and the cake didn't rise? I mean, how how did they account for the failure to be able to reproduce some of these effects?
2: Yeah, that's a big question, because you're talking about a huge period of time here, right? But, um, yeah, look, I mean, even in the 17th century, right, um, there were very many people who took the claims of alchemy seriously. And, of course, Isaac Newton is one of them. Uh, so so was Robert Boyle and John Locke. All of these guys were seriously involved in alchemy. Newton spent about 30 years studying alchemy, and we have his laboratory notebooks, as a matter of fact, describing in great detail the experiments that he did. So the the bottom line is they actually could do quite a lot of chemistry, and the term alchemy um, in the uh, early modern period included not just the attempt to transmute base metals into gold, it included the whole realm of what we would call nowadays technical chemistry right which included all sorts of stuff like uh making uh alcoholic beverages that is to say isolating the ethyl alcohol out of them by means of distillation making pigments that artists used um, you know you have art artists handbooks from the 15th century for example that say if you want to buy yellow pigment go to alchemists and get it from them because they know how to make it Um, So there's a whole realm of technical chemistry um, that was involved here. There was also a huge realm of uh, what we would call pharmacology, what they called uh, cumiatria or iatrochemistry, that is using traditional alchemical techniques like sublimation, distillation, lixidiation, and so forth in the service of making drugs. Right. So all of this stuff is going on and people are by the 16th and 17th century. The general populace is coming to the awareness of what we would call the uh, benefits of industrial chemistry. So, you know, the transmutation of base metals into gold, that was just one part of this huge field.
0: Well, Bill, just a final question. We always like to ask our guests to um, tell us about their favorite monster. So what's your favorite monster? (laughs)
2: My favorite monster? Gosh, that's a tough one. (laughs) Well, I I guess, uh, you know, the one that I've written on, if he is a monster, certainly is the homunculus. But then there's the basilisk and the uh, mandrake as well, which also qualify, I suppose. So I think, uh, yeah, no, my main uh, sort of fascination with all of this is these attempts to create artificial life in general. And also to tweak life. Yeah, actually, I'd like to say something uh, about that. Um, uh, The alchemists' attempts to alter life um, didn't just limit itself to creating sort of erizot human beings. They also were interested in making modifications. And it's under that uh, rubric of uh, changing human beings that... Is, that's one of the avenues by which alchemy entered the popular discussion and helped to create the sort of image of the mad scientist in the 19th century. Hmm. And this actually has been picked up in mainstream discussions of uh, actually, amazingly, bioengineering. And what I'm thinking of in particular is the use that uh, Leon Cass made in the President's Council on Bioethics under the George W. Bush administration of Nathaniel Hawthorne's story, The Birthmark, which is about an alchemist who tries to alter his wife by removing a uh, birthmark from her face, birthmark mm-hmm. that looks like a hand. And uh she's totally beautiful in every other way, but this birthmark drives him crazy. His name is Aylmer um, but he's very clearly not just a chemist, though Hawthorne uses that term. He's an alchemist. If you look at what uh, he has in his laboratory, the kind of experiments he does, they're traditional alchemy experiments. So at any rate, um, he kills his wife in the process.
1: Boiler alert.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: hey, hey, but it works. He gets rid of the birthmark. <laughs> he gets rid of the birthmark, but he kills his wife.
2: So the... Uh, the President's Council on Bioethics made this required reading because they wanted to uh, make people think about what Cass called the yuck factor, the yuck factor being what Cass viewed as a sort of uh, uh, transchronological um, ethical uh, good that people carry within themselves that uh, he thought uh, you know, would uh, make this sort of abuse of science abhorrent to people. I happen to think that's completely wrong. Um, In my view, Hawthorne was, in fact, drawing explicitly on this uh, alchemical discussion of artificial life and tweaking nature. Um, And, uh, you know, this is something that uh, people learn about. It's not something that you're born with.
1: Yeah, I I think a lot of ethics require a little bit of training so you can sort of uh, draw your conclusions from a a greater body of work than you may have conceived yourself. And then there's the sort of things that you sort of innately come to conclusions based on your experiences. This is complicated. I'll have to get Massimo Piliucci on here to talk about that.
2: (laughs) It is complicated. It is complicated. But but what people don't realize is that uh, this discussion that was introduced uh, by Cass into, you know, bioengineering considerations actually has this long history going back to, uh, you know, the early Middle Ages where alchemy plays a key part. So in a way, this we're, we're still discussing the homunculus. We just don't realize it. You,
1: you've you made that case very cogently. <laughs> but
2: it's a fascinating topic. It I'm, is. I'm glad that we got you on.
1: Yeah, this was great. Well, uh, thank you. And of course, we'll put a link to your book in the show notes. Is there, What are you working on now? Is there anything uh, we have to look forward to coming up?
2: Uh, I am editing all of Isaac Newton's alchemical writings, which comprise about a million words. And if you could put a link to our site, I would appreciate that greatly.
1: Sure, sure. But are you doing anything important? (laughs) 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 That's fantastic. Yeah, that would be a great thing to put in the show notes, and absolutely, we'll put a link to it. So uh, how do you find his writing? Is it pretty engaging? I, I heard he was kind of uh, a dry read, but I, I, mean, I haven't read it myself, unfortunately.
2: Well, it depends on what part of it you're looking at. Um, he actually wrote a really fascinating little treatise on what he calls the vegetability of metals. And what he's concerned with is uh, bringing metals to life, literally, so they'll grow and multiply. Um, they, Newton, like a lot of alchemists in the period, interpreted uh, processes like crystallization and dendritic uh, growths of one sort or another as uh, you know, actual living processes. And we have some video clips on our site that uh, show how this works. So it would be great if you could put links to that
1: stuff. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, you know, if you've ever watched crystals grow, it does have uh, some really interesting uh, parallels. And if you follow uh, sort of evolutionary theory, it may be more than a coincidence, right? So, uh,
2: <laughs> Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. And uh, silica gardens in particular, and that is something that uh, people in the 17th century were interested in.
1: Neat, neat. Absolutely. We'll put those links in the show notes. This was really, really interesting. So, it was. Thank you. Yeah. So, it's probably the most we've ever talked about the process of masturbation uh, and and the products of it. Maybe not. (laughs) I mean, well, (laughs) no, the rest of of us, yeah. I I mean, uh, you know, that we'll leave in the show. I mean, (laughs) all right. Thank you very much. This has been a wonderful, wonderful interview.
2: Thank you. Well, I really enjoyed it. It was a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Monster Talk.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Monster Talk. We've been talking with Professor William Newman about the homunculus and the history of science and alchemy. A link to his book on alchemy, Promethean Ambitions, will be in the show notes. Also, in the notes will be a link to his web project, which is going through the notes of Sir Isaac Newton. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views and puns on this show do not necessarily represent the opinions or sense of humor of the Skeptic Society or Skeptic Magazine. Good news, folks. The Monster Talk t-shirt shop is now up and running. I've added the first design and will update it with more products as time allows. The link is shop.monstertalk.org. I hope you can find something there you like. We've got another episode transcribed thanks to listeners like Robert Smith... Brian Beden, Ronald Knobloch, and James Neeland. If you'd like to contribute, come to monstertalk.org and click the donate button. These transcripts help Google bring new listeners to the show and help make Wikipedia references to our content easier for contributors. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Intro music was a song called Jar Cell by Pedway. Thanks for listening.
0: To stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society, want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up.
1: Did I ever tell you about my first pen pal? No. <laughs> there, there used to be this show Tell us. on. Yeah. There, there used to be this show on this sh- uh, called Big Blue Marble that came on in the seventies, and on Saturday mornings it was like the first thing to come on before the cartoons came on. And so I would get up in the morning and, and uh, you know be anxious to watch cartoons, and I, I would wait, and the first thing to come on would be Big Blue Marble. And at the end they kept saying you could get a pen pal, you know, just send a letter to here and we'll hook you up with a pen pal. And um, and so I didn't really know what to do exactly, but I wrote a letter, and it was like you know, um, what's your name? Where do you live? Uh, do you, mm-hmm. you know, what do you like to do? Just, you know, different things, different questions. You know, I was like, you know, hey, my name is Blake, you know, whatever <laughs> And it <then>, is. <so, laughs> I send it out <laughs> and then I don't think much about it. And then like, I don't know, four or five weeks later, I get a letter back and it's just, yes, no, three. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what the questions oh. were. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, there that's go. gorgeous! <laughs> it's like, I, I never wrote back. I was like, "That's ridiculous." <laughs> anyway, <laughs> okay, well, I gotta go take care of the kids and feed them or whatever it is that they need. I, I feed them blood and get them out of their jars and walk them. So, <laughs> as well, you should look the look at that mouse, good yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> Have Thanks, a good night, guys. guys.